as you all are getting there with me, I just want to say um, it's a blessing to see God work, and it's a blessing to hear the children of this church, not just my children, but the children of this church sing. It's a joy to see, hear them sing a song when there were no words on the screen, or maybe even they couldn't read, and to hear them sing There it is. <laughs> Usually I have 30 seconds to get all this going. I did not this morning. So Ephesians chapter 5. I, today we're going to begin talking about um, biblical leadership in the home. And um, what's it look like to be a, uh, a man that God has called to be a leader in the home. We've been, honestly, uh, been praying for certainly the, the wives and the submission part and all that. We've been praying for that for a while and, and been particularly praying all year. Rusty and I have been for this moment and even for tonight as we begin talking about what does it look like for husbands and men to be the shepherds of their home. What does it look like for them to lead in the house? For those who want to be husbands someday, what does it look like for you to prepare in that? And, um, so I, I, I'm excited. I'm not surprised at the, uh, the computer glitches and such on a morning like this. It tends to happen. Uh, and it's, it's for my good. It reminds me that I'm not in control, uh, that I'm not all-powerful, that God is. Um, and uh, so at least that's the grace in this morning. I want to begin with this. The sweeping command of submission in everything for the woman now comes in Ephesians with an equally sweeping command for the husband. I encouraged you ladies to not, get, to not place your hope in your husband being... Um, uh, beaten up for the next few weeks. Uh, my goal is not to pound on the husbands for a few weeks. The goal is for us to let the scriptures pound on us for a few weeks. And ladies, I want to remind you to continue placing your hope in God, not in your preachers, not in sermons, but in the Word and God's power to work through the Word. But before we move on to this husband thing, I, I want to take a few, just a few quick moments here to wrap up a couple thoughts concerning wives in submission and what we've talked about for the past three, four weeks, whatever it's been. I want to summarize it with kind of three main points. So if you're taking notes, you're, here's your sermonette. Okay, it's what most preachers preach. You're going to get in the next few moments and then we'll get to the sermon uh, for today. The first thought is this, ladies, if I could summarize for you the past three weeks, here's your first thought. You need to understand, you need to understand and keep in the forefront of your mind your proclivity to desire contrary to your husband. You've got to keep that there, like write this down, tattoo it on your arm. Genesis 3.16, the second part says, this is the curse coming from God following the fall in the garden. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So your desire shall be contrary to your husband. <clears throat> That's worthy of a tattoo, I think. We need to be reminded of this every moment, every situation you find yourself in interaction with your husband. <clears throat> That in sin, when you're not walking in the Spirit, when you're not walking in redemption, it will be contrary. Your thoughts and desires will be contrary to that of your husband. That your tendency is going to be, hear me, to use anything possible to justify the assertion of your own agenda. <clears throat> That's going to be the natural proclivity coming from your heart. The natural overflow 
of a heart that's not walking in the Spirit. The second thought that, if I was summarizing the past few weeks, is this. Your submission is ultimately to Jesus Christ. It's not to your husband, ultimately. It is to Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.21 says this, Far above all rule and authority and a power and dominion. What's he talking about there? I'm not going to read the whole section. He's talking about God is going to place Jesus, or has placed Jesus rather, in this position. Do you see that? He is in authority above all. Meaning your husband's included. So a few thoughts on this. So we're... His leadership, where your husband's leadership lines up with Scripture, you are to submit. Why? Because it's ultimately submission to God. Another thought there. Where his leadership goes places that the Scriptures are not as clear on. I would encourage you to submit. Give latitude for his leadership. And another thought of summary is that when his leadership is absent, Christ's leadership is not. It is not. Your submission, again, seeing it ultimately to Christ, and how has Christ largely exercised his authority to us today be through his word. And the third thing that I would encourage you to remember is this. When his leadership leads away from Christ, I'm going to introduce you to a a word, uh, a phrase here. When his leadership is seeking, rather, to lead you away from Christ, I think your biblical responsibility is to this. It is to submissively resist. It is to submissively resist. Now, I, I'm not going to take the time to work through all this. You'll, ha- you'll hear hints of us working through some of this as we think about leadership and, and stuff over the next few weeks. But Rusty gave an example last week that I'm actually encouraged. It caused a few wrinkles in a number of your foreheads. And I'm glad it did. It means you're not absent-minded. Now, let me back up, just for the record. If it didn't cause a wrinkle in your head, I'm not saying you're necessarily absent-minded. Okay, don't take the inverse. I'm, I'm not meaning to imply that. Here was his example. Unless you have extremely... Let me, let me back up. Here was his example. The husband tells you that you can't go to church, and Rusty was particularly thinking about in terms of a lost husband, a husband who is not following Jesus Christ, and he says... You cannot go to church. Rusty says you submit. So that caused some wrinkles in some foreheads. Let me give you the heart of Rusty's example. Rusty and I spent uh, at least an hour or two talking through this this week. It was actually a joy for him and I to go to the Word together and, 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 and to both go, what is God having to say to us through the Word? Here was the heart of Rusty's example. Unless you have, ladies, extremely clear biblical authority to resist your husband, you need to submit. So let me nuance it a little bit further, what Rusty was saying last week. I want you to know, first of all, that if Rusty and I were in disagreement on this thought... that that would be okay. This is not a top-tier doctrine. So if he was to believe in all things, like that in these, well, I'm I'm, I'm getting too far ahead. I don't want to go that far. If we disagreed, at least to some extent in here, that that would be okay. This is not a salvific issue. But I want to tell you that we don't disagree on this. And by God's grace, let me explain why. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 2. Let me reread this to you. He says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, 
so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. What's interesting here, real quick, is that he is talking about husbands, and particularly about husbands who are not obeying the word. And what he intends to say there is that those who are not redeemed, those who are not saved. And then he says that you're to submit to them. And he, does, he says this without exception. So if you just a plain reading of 1 and 2, there's no exception. What's interesting here, if you get into chapter or verse 2 rather, not chapter 2, but verse 2 rather. It says, when you see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, now here's, what, here's what I want to do for just a quick moment. I think we could go to other passages to explain what I'm getting ready to explain, but I don't think we need to go anywhere else to explain it. I think it's right here in the text. I'm going to explain it. When you see your respectful and pure conduct, it's interesting, because I think that the ESV, from my study, doesn't, does not render this the right way. See, the actual, in the Greek, the word for your respectful is actually a preposition. I think it would better read this way. Now again, I think we could go to a bunch of other texts and support one of this, this idea of submissive resistance. But in here, when you see your respectful and pure conduct, it's a little unhelpful. I think it reads better like this. When they see your pure conduct in fear. Your pure conduct in fear. That's a little different. Again, if you, if you don't believe me, you can go study the Greek. It says, in fear. So what's this fear? What Peter rather is talking about is this fear of God. That when he sees your pure conduct, that's coming from this fear of God, that he would be one without a word. That's what Peter's after here. So he would see. What, what's Peter driving at here? Peter's driving at this, that, that your pure conduct is ultimately in your submission to God, your fear of God, not the ruling of your husband. And what Peter is affirming here is her ultimate submission to Jesus, to her Father, to God. So, again, I don't want to spend much more time on this, just a few more moments. So here's the deal. When you appeal to his authority, meaning God's, and submit to it, and in the process, you resist your husband's authority, what you're actually showing him through pure conduct is the authority that you both should be submitting to. So, resting in agreement in all this, and I would encourage you, ladies, with this, as you think about moral ethics, am I, so does that mean I'm, I'm sinning against God when I don't obey my husband, but, then I, but if I don't obey what God says, that's different than what my husband says, then I, like, who am I sinning against? I would encourage you, this is another conversation for another time, I don't think when you submit to God ultimately as the ultimate authority and you resist submissively his, your husband's authority and appeal to God's authority over your husband, I don't believe that you're sinning against your husband. That's why I did not say you're rebelling against your husband. But you're submitting to both of your all's authority. And the beautiful picture there, again, whether your husband's saved or not saved, that as you submit to both of your all's authority, that you're, you are modeling, you are showing where your pure conduct comes from. And then it's to God. So, I would give you this caution that you need to be so sure that the scriptures are on your side and to the extent to which you want them to be on your side. So, for example, he says you cannot go to church. You submit to God or do you submit to your husband? You say, well, the scriptures say, do not forsake the gathering together of the believers. Here would be my question for you. What does that mean? 
Does that mean that you need to be at church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night? Because most of y'all, that's the, a, lot of, a lot of y'all, that's the church you grew up in. So does that mean we're sinning as a church so we don't do a Sunday night service? But, but it doesn't come from Hebrews 10. But what does that mean? And, and in different cultures, I think this, some of this is going to look a little bit different. But Hebrews 10 doesn't mean it necessarily looks that way. So I'm not going to flesh this out any further. But what I'd encourage you is that, ladies, when you're going to submissively resist your husband, you cannot do it because you feel a certain way. Or because your gut says a certain thing. Or because culture makes you value something differently. There's a reason why I'm using the phrase, appeal to his authority. Appeal to his authority. Where the scriptures aren't clear, give him latitude. But remember, his authority is Jesus. And practically, Jesus' authority over your husband is exercised and displayed in two places. First of all, the scriptures. That is your husband's authority. And second of all, his elders. That is your husband's authority. Okay? So I would encourage you. You need to appeal to his authority when you're going to submissively resist. Now, now listen. I, I don't want my emails and my phone blowing up because, like, you don't want to, when it's a major decision and need, you need help working through something, Rusty and I are here, but we're going to encourage you, where at in the scriptures is your husband leading you contrary to? Okay? All right. There was sermon one. Okay. I got a couple laughs. Does everyone else think that's funny? Okay. There you go. That was... If you want all the scriptural support for all of that, it was preached the past three weeks. So, here we go. The sweeping command of submission in everything for the woman comes now, again, with this equally sweeping command to the husband. I better see husband's hands like, like flying through this, okay? Or typing through this, whatever you do. So this very sweeping command to the wife is met with this equally sweeping command to the husband. But here we go. When we think about men leading in marriage, here's what we often do. I think we get the cart before the horse or we focus on the wrong things. Here's what we want to talk about when it comes to men leading in the homes. How to talk to our wives. Well, he needs to learn how to communicate. Or he needs to learn how to be decisive. He needs to not be passive in exchange for action. Or we think about how men are to act like the authority, and not just in pet areas, but in all areas. The problem, though, is this. With all leadership that isn't godly and isn't biblical, hear me, It is nothing more than an exercise and a fruit of the worship of self. Any leadership that is not biblical, that is not founded and birthed from the right place, is going to be nothing more than a fruit of the worship of self. And that, I mean, that leadership goes all over the place, but particularly here in the home. Let me give you some examples, husbands. When you don't carve out time and energy, to discern from the Word the best vision for your family, you're worshiping yourself. I mean, that can look different ways. It can look like catching up on all the football games. I was thinking this morning, as we've scheduled this shepherding, family shepherds class for Sunday nights uh, during football season. I was thinking this phrase, we have interrupted your regularly scheduled idolatry to bring you from the Word, the one whom you should worship supremely. Again, not very many laughs on that one. My goodness. Yeah, tough crowd this morning. 
<laughs> yeah. So here's the deal. Hopefully you have DVR. I do. Um, so I can catch up on mine later. On well, my idolatry later. Yes. But when you don't, listen, men, when you don't carve out time, what, whatever, I mean, the worship of self is, is going to be for different reasons. Maybe it's football. Maybe it's eating. Maybe it's working. Maybe it's money. Maybe, who knows what it is, but it's nothing for God's good. It's for your good. At least as you define good for yourself. Or another example, when you have to prove to your family that you've got it all figured out. It's just a worship of self. When leadership is motivated by that reason, when leadership looks like this, when you won't stand up for the truth of Scriptures, even when your family and or wife will not like it. When you won't do that, it's just a worship of self. Or men, when it's more comfortable to let her decide than to do the hard work of servant leadership, it's you worshiping yourself. So here's the deal. If we start trying to fix the male leadership problem in the home by talking about these surface level fruits like poor communication or inaction, the real problem will never be fixed and lasting change will never be secured. Now ladies, let me encourage you for a moment, okay? This kind of change takes a long time. Look, listen, ladies, we, I can sit down with your husband and we can read a book on communication. There's a great chapter from Paul, one of Paul Tripp's books called Talk. It's a great chapter on, on communication. But communication is going to fix your problems. I mean, our world says it will. It's not going to fix your problems. I mean... At that point, he just becomes a better communicator at a bunch of crap, right? I mean, it's not going to fix anything. The right stuff has to come out, then get communicated. Like the right motivation for communication has to be there. Otherwise, he's going to pick and choose when he communicates. It's not going to fix the problem. So ladies, I want to encourage you, this kind of change oftentimes takes a long time. You need to be patient and wait on who? The Lord. I know it's hard. Some of you have been waiting for years. I'd encourage you to keep waiting because he's faithful. Okay? He's faithful. But I would also encourage you, don't just sit, wait, and be patient. I would encourage you to fight on your husband's behalf. In prayer. In the word. Trying to live in such a way as to help him lead. You are by the way, called to be his helper. Paul understands what the sole problem with man is. This worship of self. And so he takes him to the only well. He takes us and, and, and husbands to the only well with enough water to drench this deep-rooted problem. He takes, him, he takes us here to the cross. Again, wives, your husband's root problem is not how to communicate, how to be romantic, how to make decisions, how to spend more time at home, how to be more gentle. Those are not his root problems. His root problems is that he loves other things more than he loves Jesus. That's his root problem. It's the same with yours. If you lack in submission. This is the problem. It's idolatry of self. Instead of worship of the one true king and savior. Paul says in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for 
It's not going to be on the screen, but verse 26 says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his wife and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Father, pray as we study your word this morning, as we continue to study your word this morning, that Father, you would would bring about humility and the contriteness of heart. Father, that, uh, that you would change us from the inside out as only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's your first big thought for today. Husbands, Christ-like love is a gospel-enabled love. Christ-like love is a gospel-enabled love. This call to love your spouse, to love your wife, is a love that can only be brought about by the gospel. Period. Now first, I want you to note this, all of you, particularly husbands, that not here or elsewhere for that matter does Paul exhort husbands to rule over their wives. It's not here. Go exercise authority. Make her submit. They're not told, we're not told, they were not told to exercise headship. Now listen, it's not that the man isn't to exercise leadership and headship. But it's a matter of how that headship comes about. What births that headship. See, again, this is why we got to be careful because if we go at headship in the home for, with all the wrong foundation and trying to fix it from the wrong direction, we're not going to come away with anything that looks good. If you try to get a headship without coming from this foundation, then headship will be all wrong. This is why many of the headships in our church stink. Listen, power exercised on the wrong foundation might look good for a moment, but will eventually be disastrous. It will not lead anywhere good. So the husband has power, but it's not naked power. It's not raw power. It's not a man who tramples on his wife. It's not a man who sits like a dictator. It's not a man who tells or insists his wife go and do anything. I put in my notes here, get off your own lazy whiny butt and do it yourself. It's power, listen to me, It's power clothed in love. It is power that is tempered by love. It's power that's exercised out of and because of love. And if this is not the place we begin, then everything that comes afterwards is going to be terribly off. Listen to me, no husband has the right to say that he is the head of his wife if he is not loving his wife. Do you hear me, men? Now, positionally, this doesn't impact the way she's supposed to submit. I'm not talking about that because positionally he's still the head in the relationship. I'm saying to you, though, you don't get to claim that I'm in authority if you're not loving your wife.
Listen, husbands, you're not obedient to the Scriptures unless you do. Unless you love your wife and exercise authority out of that love. Now let's talk for a few moments. What is this love? I think we have lots of misconceptions when it comes to love. I wish, I wish again, like so many times every Sunday, I wish it were like men in black. You know, you got that little pin where you like, and just erase everything from your memory and just start fresh. Because a lot of times that's easier than having to rework memories and, and baggage and try and twist those things so that they let go of your heart and let go of your mind. So anyways, so here's a little bit of my effort at using the men in black pen, whatever it's called. Anybody know what it's called? Is there a name for it? The just erasey pen? misconceptions when it comes to love. Very quickly here. This is such a flippantly used word. We know this. Love means I go to work to provide the American dream for my family. The reality is, is every man in this room is bound to think this at some time or the other. You say, well, I don't do that. Okay, well, what are you working so hard for? What are you trying to provide for them? And get down in there. Think a little deeper than you're accustomed to. Another example. Love means I let my kids play sports so that they're well experienced. I'm not saying that these are bad things necessarily. What I'm saying is that how are we defining love? I'm going to love my family, love my wife, love my kids. I'm going to lead my family in a way. What's defining the way that love has to look? Or love means I defer the decision making to my wife so as to ensure that she's happy with the decision. Ooh. Some misconceptions of love. But let's let's get to Let's get down to the, the beginning of this, okay? Listen to me here. Husbands. Certainly this is true of you wives too. But right now, you husbands, listen. You love, and when you're loving your wife rightly, you're only loving her rightly because God first loved you. Did you hear me, men? In those brief moments here and there where you are loving her rightly, it is only because you were first loved infinitely. We know this is true from 1 John, right? We love because God first loved us. I'm not going to go there. We also see it here. Paul is saying this, your love for your wives is to look like Christ's love for the church. But one can only do this having first known and experienced the love of Christ as a son. Listen, Paul commands our love as husbands by invoking our identity as those loved by Christ. Let me write that. Let me, let me write that. You should write that. Let me say that again. Paul commands our love as husbands by invoking our identity as those loved by Christ. That's weighty. I don't know if you recognize or see that. Your love for your wife, listen, is completely wrapped up in and dependent on your having been loved by God. Let me say that one again. Your love for your wife is completely wrapped up in and dependent on your having been loved by, by God, by Christ. For most of you men, this is something you don't get. I'm convinced. Men, you need to look at your life and ask yourself this question. Do I treasure Jesus supremely? 
do I? If you know to any extent and have experienced the love of God, then you will slowly but surely treasure Christ above all else. You will love Christ above all else. You see, this attitude of love, this love for our wives, comes from the gospel of love. Let me explain. Christ's back was scorched. His hands and feet were nailed to wood. A spear was thrust into his side. A crown of thorns was placed on his head. Why? 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 Because of evil men? Because of the Pharisees? Because he loved the church. Because he loved his bride. He loved her, listen to me, in spite of her unworthiness to be loved. He loved her in spite of her deficiencies. I mean, notice even here in Ephesians, going on, I'm not going to go to these verses, but in the next few verses, notice what he has to do for her. She has to be washed. She has to be cleansed. Why? Because she's filthy. Because she's disgusting. Because she's an enemy of God. But he loved her. Listen, this is the height of the doctrine of salvation. He loved us, not because of anything in us. He loved us in spite of what was in us. Since while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loved the church not because she was glorious and beautiful inside or out. But he loved her that he might make much of her and make her such a fitting bride for the perfect king of the universe. He loved her. Let me ask you men. Is that the kind of love you have for your wives? What do you think? I try, but I don't always. That's what Paul's calling us to. Wives. He says to submit, but then he says in verse 25, husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Listen to me, men. That's the standard. We don't get to change the standard. We don't get to say better communication, ladies. More romance, ladies. Husbands, we don't get to say the American dream, providing a safe place to live. We don't get to change the standard. That's the standard. And if you feel very unable to reach that standard, good. Good. Let me explain the standard a little bit more. 
This love involves showing, man, let me put it in practical terms, unceasing care and loving service for your wife's entire well-being. Let me say that again. This love involves showing unceasing care and loving service for your wife's entire well-being. That's the standard. Wives, aren't you glad that we talked about hope in God last week? Because some of you didn't know that that was even the standard that your husband was supposed to be matching. Maybe there's a reason why Paul addressed the wives first. I don't know. Listen, this love, men, is not an erotic feeling. It's not a, I'm fond of her. It's a love that resembles God's love, love, joy, peace, and so on. Right, this links us back to Ephesians 5.18, where he talks about being filled with the Spirit. Listen, if you are filled with the Spirit, then you will be filled with the fruit of the Spirit. And part of the fruit of the Spirit is the love of God. So see where this is all like Paul's just building and building and building and building. Love here, listen men, involves an act of the will, not simply an emotional or physical response. It involves an act of volition, an act of choosing, mentally choosing. This is what I'm going to do. A big theme, and I know with Rusty and I, as we've sought to lead people in recent days, is do the hard work. The work of a man. It's an act of the will, a choosing. But again, right, we understand that this is will is not going to happen. This choosing is not going to happen apart from the love of God and the work of the Spirit in our lives. But nevertheless, it's still an act of the will. You see, the height of this love is displayed and a husband leading his wife to treasure Jesus above all else. This is the love that he's talking about here. Why did Jesus die? What was the purpose of him dying on the cross? So that his, whoa, so that his bride would love who? Himself. Why? Because that's what's best for her and that's what brings God's glory. Brings God glory. If you're to love like that, it's not to lead her to love you supremely. I think that's where we tend to operate in, or where we tend to operate at, is I do what I do so that she would love me supremely. Listen, that, that motivation will not go well when you need to lead her to do something she doesn't want to do. But if you're leading her to love Jesus supremely, then that gets a little easier. Not easy, but easier. You see, you see it in this passage. Jesus gave himself up in order to show his bride that treasuring him was supremely good. So men, I want to call you to the second thing here, and that is Christ-like love demands death to your life. probably been the most challenging point particularly for me this week look at the passage there husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her and gave himself up for her let's talk about some misperceptions or misconceptions here you know, during this time, in the Roman time, the, the, the thought was the husbands worked, the wife took care of the home, and this was used for the purpose of the man securing social status through his work and play. It's not much different today. 
misconception here. The wife should manage the home so that the man can work and play and make himself look good by the kind of life that he provides for his family and the kind of life that he can lead apart from the duties of the home. Or the husband and wife both work and they pay someone else to semi-manage the home in order to look good by the kind of life that they're able to live. Let me press in a little bit further. Homeschool dads. Is it a prestige thing for you? Is it a prestige thing for you? Is it a, I do this and lead my family in this way because that's what makes me look spiritual? Let me ask the opposite question. Public school dads. Is it a prestige thing for you? I mean, I do this so that we can arrange other parts of our life to look a certain way. Listen, I'm not picking on one or the other. What I'm I'm picking on here is why are you leading your family the way you're leading it? Right? This This is what we've seen so far from mankind is that the wife and husband use each other for their own selfish purposes. And they throw each other under the bus when it's convenient. Back in the garden, what happens? She eats from the tree first, right? And all the men go, ha ha. Right? And then who does God come to? He comes to Adam. Why? Because he's the one supposed to be leading the home. And then what's Adam's response? Who does he blame? The woman you gave me. Right? What's he do? He throws Eve under the bus. They didn't have buses back then, but the metaphorical bus. Listen, today we have someone running for office. The highest office in the land. Who has done nothing but use four wives and spends them to serve himself. Listen, this is our culture. And you see lots and lots of Christians, I'm trying to use right words, exalting this man, even in the face of the very opposite of what God is calling men to here. Listen, you can't fall, here's a little political aside, okay? You can't fall into the lie that character is separate from policy when you vote this fall. If he's willing to spend his wives, four of them, to serve himself, what else will he be willing to spend to serve himself? Back to the sermon. This is what we see. We, we want to spend our wives in order to serve ourselves, men. That's the problem. Again, what does this go back to? Worship of self. But that doesn't mean that, that for some men that looks like, wives, you do this and you do that and you do this and you do that and, I, and, and that all makes me look good. For other men, it's, honey, what do you want? And, and, and let's have it your way, you know? Both of them spending their wives to serve themselves. But you see, the model and ground of the husband's love for his wife is Christ's love for the church. And this is amplified, made more clear and loud when it says, and gave himself up for her. What do we learn from this phrase? Listen, Jesus took the initiative in handing himself over to death on her behalf. You got, you got to listen to what Paul's saying. He didn't say, and he happened to stand there when they came down, on a, came down upon him to crucify him. No, it says he actively, the, the language here is that he gave himself up for her like a gift. He took the initiative. He went to the cross as a willing victim for her. This act, action rather, on behalf of his bride was the supreme demonstration of his love for his bride. 
Here's what you see. I, I want to quote this. I forget who wrote it. But the sacrificial steadfastness of the heavenly bridegroom's covenant love for his bride. That's what you see in this phrase. He gave himself up for The self-sacrificing love shows us and calls us to serve our wives and love as we imitate God. This comparison of the husband's love to Christ's love, we need to understand, is broad and long and high and deep. Listen, men, it includes everything for the sake of your wife's treasuring of Jesus Christ. Everything. Your thoughts, your actions, the way you spend time, the way you spend money, the way you speak to her, the way you talk about her when she's not there, the decisions you lead in, everything. Your entire being. Let me give you an implication. This requires an active intentionality on the husband's part. There's no room for abandoning leadership. Again, Paul's point is that Jesus actively gave himself over to be crucified. What part of that looks like lazy, mindless, selfish men? None of it. Bless you. So let me give you two thoughts here with this. Both in, in the idea of laying down your life, giving yourself up for her. It may require laying down of your life even the good things. Even the good things. Let me explain that. Clearly, the life Jesus laid down for his bride was not sinful, right? We can't draw that conclusion. Jesus lays down his life for his bride. But he wasn't, he wasn't laying down watching too much football, right? Because he wasn't sinning. He didn't lay down a fleshly life. Instead, he lays down a perfectly righteous and good life. It was a life that was moving the kingdom forward, a life that was doing good. But Jesus understood and believed that the ultimate good that he could do for his people was to lay his life down. So men, you and I need to think about even the good things in our life that we may need to lay down for our wives, for her sake. Even the good things. Listen, I even, you know, I, I wrote this in my notes this morning. And I think about Rusty and I as pastors, as elders here. There's lots of things that you all do and, and stuff, and we want to be a part of all kinds of things. That are, this would be good, right? It would be good for us to be a part of whatever the case may be. Even counseling or, or get-togethers or whatever. And I'm not saying don't invite. Please invite. We'd like to. But sometimes I just simply can't because it's something I have to lay down in order because of the priority of our wives. Just a practical example. So it may require you laying down of your life, even the good things. But it will require the death of your flesh. It will require the death of your flesh. Selfish ambitions. Laying down your schedule. Man, if I could just be a little raw with you for a few moments. One of my biggest regrets is when we first had Chapman. And I really liked to hunt. I just went hunting the past couple days. Um, we just had Chapman. He was born in November. He was born like a week before gun season. And up until this point, I had hunted my heart out 
all the time. I, in like the course of three years, I killed like 24 deer. All that was legal, for the record. Just in case. I was hunting in Kentucky, and you can kill as many as you want as long as you keep buying tags. So we get to that fall, Chapman's born, I want to go hunt. Here are my newborn sons at home. My wife, newborn mommy, is at home. And I go hunting. And I go hunting for like a week, something like that. And I hate that. I've repented to her for that and asked her for forgiveness. She has, but it still stands in my mind as an example of not dying to myself. Not dying to myself for her good. Listen, it means giving yourself away for the good of your bride. And the good of your bride is as defined by the Scriptures, right? It's not just what makes her happy. But it involves crucifying your flesh. It means resolving to be faithful to your bride. Not yielding to temptations of lust and anger and pride or whatever else. Death to self is not synonymous with giving decisions to your wife. Not saying that. But you're loving your flesh when you do what you do to simply make her happy. Why? Because it's ultimately just to make you happy. But you're loving her when you do what is best for her as you study the Scriptures. And all of this is going to require a level of death to self. Last big thoughts this. Husbands. This is more of an implication. Christ-like love is a call to serve your wife. Listen, headship modeled after Christ. Let me help you with something. Headship modeled after Christ will birth in your wife the sense of divine value that God has purposed her for. Let me say that again. Headship modeled after Christ. So loving her like Christ will serve her in such a way that it births in your wife, a sense of divine value that God has purposed for her. And listen, if your wife is a follower of Jesus, she's longing for that. She wants that. Now ultimately her sense of divine value and all that, God can give to her apart from your faithfulness or lack thereof. So thank goodness for that. However, you have an opportunity to serve her in an amazing way. So your service, men, your service, your laying down of your life is not aimless. Christ's sacrificial love is a foot-washing love. We should become grace brethren or something. Sorry, that's a joke. They, they foot wash. Sorry. <laughs> Pastor joke, I guess, maybe. All right. His headship is our model. He came to serve, though he was what? The head. Though he was the one in authority over. We see in Christ's authority coupled with this unparalleled humility and love. And a husband who heeds this instruction will not be passive and will not be overbearing in his action. Instead, if he models this after Christ, all areas of married life will be characterized by this self-giving love and Forgiveness. 
So as you do this, as you, as you lead in this way, it begins to birth in your life this sense of divine value. Let me tell you this, man. We'll be a little bit hard on you here for a few moments. Um, headship that doesn't lead your wife to this sense of divine value is actually a form of robbery. It is a form of robbery. Why? Because this form of headship takes from your wife some measure of the knowledge of grace that God intends for her to possess. Do you hear me that, men? Only you as her husband can model this headship for her in the home. No one else can do that. Certainly, can she look at, at other men and how they lead their homes? And can she be encouraged by some? I, yes, I'm sure. But no one can lead her in the home from your position. No one else can do that. Only he can. And so, when you withhold that grace from her, you are robbing your wife. And men, I would encourage you, I would encourage you, if you've been doing that, to go repent to your wife. Or if you've been leading for a year or two or whatever it's been, you've been trying, but, but you recognize that before that, I, I hadn't. I was robbing you. You should repent. First of all, to God and to your wife. You see, the exercise of biblical headship should enable a wife to know the fullness of God's grace in her life. She should be flourishing. Guys, this should be apparent in Paul's description of Christ's care for his bride. Let me read to you a couple thoughts here in closing. Brian Chapel, another pastor, says this. He says, The radiant beauty that God desired for his spiritual spouse, he purchased with the price of his own blood. Men, you need to see that your wife, she's a follower of Jesus, and if not, she's still in the image of God, that God has desired for her this beauty that he was willing to pay the price of his blood. Now men, I've been saying this all along, so I'm not going to belabor the point now. Your turn from this moment, like repentance, right? We've talked about this a little bit in our DNA leadership, and so I'm trying to help people understand that I'm sorry is confession. Repentance is a journey. So confession, I'm sorry, and what am I sorry for? Like That's the beginning of repentance. That's not the beginning and the end. Repentance is the journey back, like the prodigal son recognizes in the pig pen. That's kind of like a confession moment, and then he journeys back to the home. Make me a servant, please. Let me encourage you, man. I've, again, I've been saying this all along, that it's not a turn to a bootstrap, pull yourself up mentality. It's a turn to where? The point we began with. Do I know and cherish the love of God? Is that supreme in my life? Let me end with this quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. It says, Christ loving the church. That is how he looks at you. Everyone, everyone look up here. That is how he looks at you. It's Christ loves the church. That is his attitude toward you. Men, Jesus' attitude towards you is he loves the church. The principle is this, he says. This love this godlike love is altogether above the erotic and philanthropic 
which is the highest the world can know. The greater characteristic of this love is that this is not so much governed by the desires to have, but this love is governed by the desires to give. He says, God so loved the world. How? That He gave. He says, there's nothing wrong with the other types of love. But even when you have them at their, at their best, they're always self-centered. They're always thinking of themselves. But the characteristic of this other love, that it does not think of itself. It says He gave Himself. This love is not always considering what it is going to have, but what it may give for the benefit of the other. That's why Paul says this. Husbands, love your wives like that. Even as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up. And to you men, I would say this. Even as Christ loved you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the men in this church would work hard and depend even harder. That they would depend on your grace and your sufficiency. That they would turn to the fuel of your divine infinite love displayed in the gospel of your son Jesus Christ on the cross that they would turn to that as as the first place they go when it comes to leading their families Father that we as husbands Father we have no hope in caring for our wives the way they deserve if we do not first see how we were cared for by you in the cross of your Son, Jesus Christ. We will not, we have no hope apart from that. Let us, let us turn our eyes to hope in the cross. This is our song, Father. This is our song. Let this be the song of our hearts. Forgive us for failing. Forgive me for failing, Father. Give me the grace to walk in repentance and faith. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.